Random House Audio presents Adventure Capitalist, The Ultimate Investor's Road Trip. This is the author, Jim Rogers. Chapter 1, A Yellow Mercedes. I entered the investment business in 1968 with $600 in my pocket. And I left it in 1980, at the age of 37, with enough money to satisfy a lifelong yearning for adventure. As the co-manager of an offshore hedge fund, analyzing the worldwide flow of capital, raw materials, goods, and information, I had invested where others did not, exploiting untapped markets around the globe, and it was a significant factor in my success. But what I wanted out of Wall Street, and ultimately out of long-term investing, was not typical of the business. I wanted to buy the freedom to taste as much of life as possible. I wanted to see the world. And I wanted to see the world that other travelers rarely see, the world that can only be seen from the ground up and only truly understood from that vantage point. I wanted to see what I like to think of as the real world. I have met people who have traveled to more countries than I, but in almost every case, it seems, they have flown from one place to another. You have not really been to a country, I believe, until you have had to cross the border physically, had to find food on your own, fuel, a place to sleep, until you have experienced it close to the ground. In the late winter of 1990, I set out on a two-year odyssey to circle the planet on a motorcycle. That 65,000-mile journey took me across six continents and through dozens of countries. It landed me in the Guinness Book of Records and resulted in a best-selling book of my own, Investment Biker, Around the World with Jim Rogers. And no sooner had I completed the trip and returned home to New York Then I began thinking about something more. I was abetted in my quest to find it by a simple quirk of the calendar, the approaching turn of the millennium. My insatiable thirst to understand firsthand what is going on in the world, to be there, to see it for myself, to dig out the real story, was intensified by the opportunity to capitalize on a historical moment. My plan was to spend three years driving around the globe as the 20th century came to a close to take the world's pulse at the end of one millennium and the start of another. The trip would be both an adventure and a part of the continuing education I had gauged in all my life, from rural Demopolis, Alabama, where I grew up, through Yale, Oxford, and the U.S. Army, eventually to Wall Street, where experience taught me that the experts were usually wrong. My travels tended to be characterized by the slaughter of sacred cows, the puncturing of various balloons, and the laying to rest of preconceptions of the world held by certain, quote, authorities, many of whom rarely left home. My success in the market has been predicated on viewing the world from a different perspective. Finding promising investment opportunities was not a defined aim of the trip, but just because of who I am, it is something that happens when I travel. As an investor, I would seek to learn about the markets in China, Africa, and South America, and I would visit promising stock exchanges whenever possible. I had made money in the past by investing in sleepy markets, such as Austria, Botswana, Peru, and others, and would no doubt stumble on some again. If the trip killed me, I would die happy, pursuing my passion, and that was better than dying on Wall Street someday with a few extra dollars in my pocket. The trip took me through 116 countries, many of which are rarely visited. Saudi Arabia, Myanmar, Angola, Sudan, Congo, East Timor, and the like. 
The journey took me down the West Coast and up the East Coast of Africa through 32 countries there. It took me from Atlantic to Pacific, out of Europe, across Central Asia and China, and from the Pacific back to the Atlantic by way of Siberia. From the northeast coast of Africa, I traveled across Arabia and the Indian subcontinent to Indochina, Malaysia, and Indonesia. After touring Australia and New Zealand, I made for the southern tip of South America, driving from there to Alaska before heading home to New York. No one had ever driven overland following this route. The trip took me through approximately half of the world's 30 civil wars, covered 152,000 miles, more than twice the distance of my previous trip, and resulted in another Guinness World Record. The trip began on January 1, 1999, in Reykjavik, the capital of Iceland. And I did not make the trip alone. I traveled with a beautiful woman, a blue-eyed blonde from Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, named Paige Parker. I met Paige in 1996 during a speaking engagement at the Mint Museum in Charlotte. Paige, a fundraiser at the local Queens College, had read my book on the recommendation of the college president, Billy Wireman, and had come to hear me speak about my motorcycle trip. I tracked her down the next day and invited her to dinner. I'm thinking of going around the world again, I said to her on our first date. I haven't told anybody yet, but I'm thinking of doing it at the turn of the millennium. She agreed that such a trip could be illuminating. Do you want to go with me? She was momentarily dumbstruck. Yes, she said, sign me on. Of course, we thought it was idle banner. Who knew? Paige and I had been dating for a little over a year when she quit her job in Charlotte and moved to New York, taking her own apartment there in October 1997. As she began work as a director at a marketing firm and she and I began working that much more on our romance, I began seriously searching for an overland alternative to motorcycles. There's nothing more exhilarating than driving a motorcycle. I first rode a motorcycle across China in 1988, a trip documented by PBS as part of its travel series called The Long Ride. And had Paige been enthusiastic to do so, we might have motorcycled around the globe. It was she who encouraged me to think about making the trip in a car. But I was not going to travel in just any car. It had to be a sports car, and it had to be a convertible. I wanted to put the top down and have the wind in my face. Of course, I knew nothing about cars. Living in New York City, I had not owned one since 1968. And my ignorance was apparent to everyone when I explained that what I was looking for was a convertible two-seater with four-wheel drive and a lot of clearance off the ground, without which I could guarantee no car was going to make it around the world. Everyone, in turn, guaranteed me that there was no such car on the market. Every two years, there's a big four-wheel drive show in Munich, and in the spring of 1998, I attended it. I did not find the car I was looking for, but I met people there who modified cars, and one of them told me about a fellow in California I should look up. It was typical of the quest that I had to go to Germany to find a guy in California. The guy in California told me about another guy in California, and that is how I met Gerhard Steinle. It was Steinle and his team at Prisma Design International who would put together the one-of-a-kind Mercedes-Benz in which Paige and I eventually traveled the world. By then, my requirements had become more specific. More than a convertible, the car had to be equipped with a retractable hardtop. I did not want to run the risk of the tops being slashed, which could prove to be a definite damper on a trip around the world. Furthermore, I decided, it had to have a diesel engine. Trucks, buses, trains, and boats around the world run on diesel fuel, and you can always get it. Gasoline, I had discovered on my previous trip, was very often difficult to find. 
Steinle, a former president of Mercedes-Benz Advanced Design of North America, came up with the notion of merging the body and interior of Mercedes SLK Roadster with the chassis and diesel engine of the company's sport utility vehicle, known in Europe as the G-Class, or der Gelinde Wagon, G-Wagon. The SLK, which came with a retractable hardtop as standard equipment, was built on the same wheelbase as the shorter of the two G-Class models. The chassis of the two cars were the same. To marry the two, Steinle figured out, we would not have to cut or lengthen anything. I told Steinle that I needed an extra fuel tank and a secret compartment to hide money. He said that because the hardtop retracted into the trunk, I was going to need a trailer as well. He would design one to match the car. He talked me out of going with a manual transmission, explaining that Mercedes-Benz was a far better driver than I, and that the company's automatic transmission would get me out of predicaments better than I could extricate myself with a stick shift. I need everything ready to go by the end of the year, I said. Steinle, unbeknownst to me, rather than simply order the cars, called Mercedes of North America, told him he had this crazy guy who wanted to do X, Y, and Z, and asked if they wanted to get involved. Apparently, the people there liked the story. When I next heard from Steinle, he reported, to my amazement, that he had persuaded Mercedes of North America to provide the vehicles free of charge, just so long as I paid for the expensive conversion. And of course, Gerhard said, they'll be under warranty. Let's do it. I said. Even in the absence of a warranty, I knew I would find Mercedes service everywhere in the world. Even in the developing world, one is never far from a dealership. Every dictator and mafioso in the world drives a Mercedes. Even in countries with no roads to speak of, Mercedes service is available, often to the exclusion of things like food, thanks to all the U.S. foreign aid, the IMF, and World Bank money being shipped in. It is no secret that this money is aimed at nourishing only those corrupt enough to get their hands on it, while at the same time fattening the bureaucrats on both sides of the transaction who diligently work the trough. And none of them is driving a Chevy. I knew much of this from my last trip. The upcoming trip, especially as it took us through Africa, would be an eye-opening education into the workings of the latest foreign aid scam, the Non-Governmental Organization, or NGO. As an American taxpayer, I would be amazed to discover that a lot of the money we send to these countries goes to support Mercedes and BMW dealers and various Swiss bankers. But more about that later. The truth is that, had we traveled in a different car, we probably never would have made it around the world. This wacky idea of a car was a perfect choice in every way. One of its more important attributes would prove to be its color. Officially, sunburst yellow or as I saw it, Martian movie yellow. It would draw crowds everywhere we went, making us many friends in the process, and in so doing, save our lives on several occasions. Showing up by surprise in a car so unusual, so weird, and at the same time so downright unthreatening would spark immediate curiosity. The bizarre, all-terrain hybrid in explosive color was just goofy enough to throw people off balance, to warm them up long enough to get us through a particular situation before anybody had a chance to say, hey, we forgot to rob those people, or weren't we supposed to kidnap them? In addition to the G-Wagon and the SLK Roadster that he would combine to make the hybrid, Gerhard arranged for Mercedes to donate a second G-Wagon as well. The additional, straight, unmodified SUV would carry the video cameraman and webmaster I was seeking to recruit for the trip. Paige and I knew from the beginning that we wanted to document the trip, 
and it did not take some youngsters running up to me and saying, you need a website, for me to realize that there was no other way to do it. Ten years earlier, there had been many places where the only way I could communicate with New York was by postcard. But the world had since undergone a communications revolution of blinding velocity, and Paige and I were determined to participate in the revolution firsthand. We decided to maintain a multimedia website, by way of which we would provide an online diary of the trip and interact with those who traveled with us. For the last 27 and 31 months of the trip, respectively, we were joined in our adventure by the same videographer and webmaster, Chris Capazzoli and Fred Garanda, who traveled in the second vehicle and helped chronicle the trip. <laughs> 